Psalm number five. Psalm number five, to the chief musician upon the Chiloth, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But... As for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulchre, They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. For they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. Amen. Amen. You see with me just the last verse of Psalm 4 for the one or two that were not here last time. It says there, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell. In safety, and Psalm four itself also began in uh, in the in the position of prayer, praying to the Lord, "Hear me when I call." So there are similarities between Psalm four and five. Again, there is a, a contrast between the godly and the ungodly. Again, but if we consider then the fourth Psalm as exemplifying the evening prayer, then we can rightly say, with the first verses of Psalm five, that we have then this as the morning prayer. Uh, and so we have an evening prayer, and then we have a morning prayer. And, and we have that superscription that is above the... Uh, let me just move this pulpit back. We have this superscription that is uh, above... I hope I'm still in focus, uh, media team. Um, we have uh, the superscription. So it is to the chief musician upon the Heloth. Now, there were three chief musicians that were set up in the time of David. So it's one of those famous name being Asaph, of course. But to the chief musician upon Nuchiloth, a psalm of David. So here we have again the third psalm that is ascribed to David. Uh, As I said, it's a a morning prayer, or it speaks of praying in the morning at least. And and then we have this word Nuchiloth. 
It's a, uh, it's a strange word in this sense. It literally means inheritances. Um, you say, well, what, what on earth has that got to do with, with music? Now, Kyle and Delich were two God-fearing uh, Lutheran Hebraicists, um, and they have, they've got a whole commentary on the whole of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in their studies, and they, they, they go deep, but they do make a, a link between this and music. There seems to be a use of that word about inheritance that is also used for wind instruments or flutes. Now, what is that link? Uh, they couldn't quite uh, make it clear to me, at least. They couldn't quite say that I could see. But there is a link. So you could say Nuchiloth is, 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 is the plural of, of Nuchilah, so meaning plural inheritances or fruit, flute, flutes. So one, one idea is that inheritances is maybe the name of a tune. And, and therefore it's used on that way. And yet we know that it's also used for the word for flute, which makes more sense when we're thinking, here's the chief musician, play it on the flutes. And so that makes sense as well. In fact, maybe more sense in the context. Uh, but we could make a link. We could say wind instruments are just like prayer. They're, they're driven by breath. And maybe there is a, 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 um, a, a link there that the, the children of God, it becomes them as part of their inheritance, the privileges they have as the, as the adopted children of God, uh, to pray uh, to their heavenly Father in and through Christ. So maybe there is uh, that link. But in any case, if that link is correct, it, it makes no difference. But in the sense that we have more, in more substantial matters in this psalm, uh, we do have certain aspects of prayer that we can learn about as well as the God to whom we pray. There are certain doctrines about the Lord also. And so as, with the Lord, as the Lord's pleased to help us, uh, I'd like to examine with you and entitle this short um, and quite skimming message in many ways, uh, the praying in and through the righteousness of Christ. Praying in and through the righteousness of Christ. So when we take the first three verses together, uh, we see the request in prayer because this is how this psalm is opening up. Even though it's called a, a psalm of David, it's, it's opening up as a, as a prayer. And in that request in prayer in verses uh, 1 and 2, we see his persistence. There's a persistence in the prayer of David to God that we read of. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King, my God, and my God. For unto thee will I pray. As the psalmist then opens up his prayer to the Lord God, he's He's clearly desirous of God's attention. You see, he's calling upon the name of the Lord in three different ways and using three different names. He wants the Lord's attention. And those three different ways, it's quite often in Hebrew that it's just repeated twice in two different ways, but here we have it in three ways. Give ear, and that's a literal translation of what we have in the Hebrew. Then it's consider my meditation, uh, and then hearken, just uh, hear me. And each time he uses three different names. I mean, each time, but he uses three different names of the Lord. So we have the Lord, that is Jehovah in the Hebrew. And we have my King. And we have my God. And that word uh, for my King is the first part of Melchizedek, uh, which is my King is righteous. 
Uh, again, so it's, it's, it's bringing us subtle and maybe not so subtle links with the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see those as well. But David is, is, is insistent in making his prayer. But Loki, notice that he also lacks a presumption in making these prayers. We know that David is a born-again believer. We know that he has an intimate walk with the Lord. We know there are uh, periods of backsliding, a terrible period of backsliding for those many months with Beth, uh, with Bathsheba. Uh, but also towards the end of his life, very end of his life, there's, there's not much mention of, of high spiritual and warm spiritual uh, ways when he gets really old and, and Solomon has taken over the throne and there's a sort of dual regency. Uh, a dual uh, um, rule at that time, although Solomon has taken over in his father's very old and feeble days. But for the rest of the time, we know David as a man after God's own heart, as a, as a great example um, and a great hero of the faith. But we see here, although he has an intimate walk, one of the greatest walks with the Lord as we read through the, through the, the history books and we, we read through the, the, the Psalms that he has authored. As he has that intimate walk, he never oversteps the mark. He never oversteps the mark and, and gets pally with the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't dethrone God with his words, as you'll hear uh, many in the so-called evangelical world, dethroning God and, and diminishing his highness, and he doesn't deprecate God's majesty in the slightest. There's, a, there's an intimacy that he has, and yet God is still God. And God is also his father. God is also his friend, but God is still the exalted majesty on, on high. And, and he exalts God. In these titles and these phrases, Jehovah, the, the eternal triune one, my king, my God. But most of all, I would say, not only with these titles, but he exalts God as the hearer of prayer. Now that is really an, an exaltation of God as father, to hear the prayers of his own children, and it delights him to do so. And here we see David, his child, calling upon him. His father is king, his father is God, his father as Jehovah, but his father as the hearer of prayer. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. It's not maybe might, but thou shalt hear my prayers. And because his prayers are great, no, because God is great. Was David faultless? No, but his Lord is perfect in loving kindness towards him. So we see his persistence in that calling. And that's exactly what we need to do, to continue that calling upon the Lord that we know we have his attention. But we see his practice also. He says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. As a brief aside, this verse and many other verses like it was a, a teaching aid to the Puritans that it's good for a Christian to pray out loud. So many times we hear about the Lord hearing the voice of my, um, of my petitions, the voice of my cry. And so often uh, that, that is used, so they would, in practice, I'm not saying they made it as a, as a, as a, as a commandment uh, to be followed, to bind the conscience, but the examples there in the Scriptures, but there's also the example of groans, the groaning, um, and therefore no words are coming out. But that's just as a brief aside. David teaches us now of what? Of the right way to start the day. 
People often say the right way to start the day is with a good breakfast, with a good cup of coffee, and that's absolutely nothing against a good cup of coffee or a good breakfast for the body, but as good as they are, it's calling upon the God, upon our God and our, God, our Saviour and our Heavenly Father with the first lungfuls of the day. And there's something precious about that. It's establishing then that pattern with Psalm 4, praying last thing at night and now first thing in the morning, ending the day with God and starting the day with God. At night, what, what would we be doing? We would be giving God thanks for all of his mercies, for all of his deliverances, for all of his blessings for that day. And now in the morning, we're looking forward to a day. Maybe we're not looking forward to a day. But we cast it into his hands. And we pray for the Lord's help, blessing, his deliverance, his protection, help when we have a difficult meeting or a difficult situation. Or something's going to arrive, something good's going to happen, and we anticipate it, and we again give the Lord thanks for that which we know is coming. But even more so then, if we think not just of David giving us this, this example, what about the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, a great example of he that, that prayed at night, prayed throughout the night even, stood up early in the morning before it was even light, and, and again, he, he prayed in the morning, um, which, technically speaking, we, we might not even say is morning. We might say it's the middle of the night. But the Lord did this, and he did this during the day. He did it when there was food. He looks up to heaven, and he breaks the bread, and he gives thanks, and he blesses the food, etc. There's always time of prayer. And so David, an example to us, as, as Paul would be an example, and we, we would follow Paul, as Paul says, you know, follow me, in, a sense, in essence, as much as I follow the Lord. And we'll do that with David. But ultimately, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only did he pray on earth, but even now he ever liveth to make intercession for us. The holy example of the Lord. So we've seen the request in prayer in those first three verses. Secondly then, we see the righteousness of God that is mentioned. The righteousness of God himself, who God is in his own righteous uh, behavior, not his behavior, his righteous being, the essence of who he is, that, that, that holiness that we've just recently looked at. Attribute, that was the word I was searching for. The attribute of God is his righteousness, an expression of his holy being. And so we see that in verse 4. He then goes to describe who, who God is. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. This is who God is. Thou art not a God. And so we see that he's righteous against the impenitent. Say against the ungodly. The righteousness of God. And neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing, that is falsehood and deceit. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Now, as you know, no doubt, there is a lie that's going around the church of Christ. And that is this, that God hates sin but loves the sinner. Now, without further qualifications to help understand that, just that plain basic statement, as we've just read in Psalm 5, is not true. It's not true. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. 
Evil shall not dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. So God is clearly made clear to us here that he is a God that neither loves sin nor loves, and here I will qualify it, the impenitent sinner. The obdurate, the hardened sinner. He doesn't love sin, he doesn't love the sinner because both are an abomination to him. Both are an abomination. Evil will not dwell with him. He hath no pleasure in wickedness. On the contrary, God's own holy righteousness is against sin and against the sinner. In a most thorough way, he will deal with them. And how will he deal with them? Well, verse 6 says, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor, find abhorrent, the bloody and deceitful man. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. So it can't be made more clear to us that God hates sin and he hates the sinner. His wrath is against them. And yet what we also see is that blessed word, but in verse 7. Because we see God's righteous not only against the impenitent, but for the penitent. There's a righteousness of God that is for the impenitent. But, but as for me, says David, who has received grace from God uh, to, to have faith in the Lord and to live with him and for him. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. Now God's righteousness is towards the the penitent. There is righteousness for them by faith. By faith, as we read in the Old Testament, uh, that Abraham believed and it was attributed, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So when we see that righteousness that's mentioned in the Old and the New Testament, it's not the self-righteousness of anyone, because that is no righteousness. It is the righteousness that they have by the faith that has been worked in them. That they have faith and therefore they are joined. They are joined to Jesus Christ. They are joined to the Lord. And therefore his righteousness becomes their righteousness. And therefore we can say, yes, uh, God is righteous, the righteousness of God. It is against those that are impenitent, but it is for those, for their covering, uh, for their legal case, as it were, for those who are penitent, those that repent and come before the Lord in faith. And so God, therefore, can righteously forgive them because Christ, as we understand, has paid for all their wickedness and sin. And we'll see a little bit more of that in a minute. But as for me, I will come into thy house. And see that David here gives all the glory to God. In all these phrases that he makes, that he uses here in these verses 7 and 8, he gives all the glory to God. He says, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship towards thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. Here is a 
a great high point of, of, of David's own faith toward and, and with the living God, giving him all the glory, acknowledging that there's nothing in him. Uh, here we do not see him boasting in himself, but as Paul teaches, boasting in the Lord, glorying in the Lord. And he says, it's all, it's all of thee, and I come into thy house. And, and so David's really humbling himself in this prayer. That's an important lesson for us to learn not only the morning and evening and the practical matters, not only glorifying God in who he is, including in his righteousness against the unrepentant wicked, uh, but in who he is as the sovereign redeemer and provider and protector of all things given graciously and kindly to us, giving him all the glory. So we've seen the request in prayer. We've seen something and I'm skimming over it, something of the righteousness of God. Uh, but thirdly, uh, this is extended as, as, as he comes back now, David comes back in writing this psalm, or composing this psalm, into verses 9 and 10, where he deal, clearly deals once again, and this is the third point, with the reprobate. With the reprobate. He's already mentioned them, now he comes back to them, having glorified God, but then he compares it, he says, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Uh, in some ways, this is the exact opposite of what we see in the New Testament when the Lord uh, speaks of, the, of the, the Pharisee going into the temple and boasting about himself. And then we have the, 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 the we see the tax collector bemoaning um, his, his, his sin, be merciful unto me, the sinner. And so we have one man boasting about his, his own sin, but here we have Christ, David, I'm saying Christ, but yes, David bemoaning the wickedness that is in others. So it's a, it's a righteous bemoaning. In a way, I thought, as a parallel. So here, he is bemoaning the wickedness. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. They're faithless. And they're faithless spiritually. They're faithless to their creator. They're, faith, they're faithless uh, to God on, on so many levels. For there's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. That last part of verse 9 you may recognize from Romans 3. Romans 3 and verse 13 uh, is quoting this and then continues. In fact, that whole section in Romans 3 is quoting from Proverbs, is quoting from Isaiah, is quoting from a number of places, all to describe uh, the wickedness of man, of mankind, full stop. If there is no faithfulness in their mouth, it's that their throat is an open sepulchre. Well, there's an emphasis on the sins of the mouth here. There's an emphasis on them. He speaks of uh, the mouth, the throat, the tongue, and their counsels, their plans, their ideas. And so what, what are these, these sins of the mouth that are, are, are getting the emphasis here? Is, is lies, deceit, slander, blasphemy, a false profession? So gospel hypocrites, atheism, idolatrous words... And you might say, well, why is he emphasizing the mouth? Well, because as Christ says in Matthew 12 and 34, 
He says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? They're evil, they cannot speak good things. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. And it is because their inward part is very wickedness. It's corrupt and it is rotten. And here we have an imprecatory petition. And he says, Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. And these are strong words. Some people who I uh, have known in the past will say, well, these, that's an example of something that's, that doesn't suit the New Testament church or the New Testament Christian. I'll say, well, that's nonsense. It does. It does suit it because, as, as it says elsewhere, that we have hate. What is hate for? We do have hate, but our hate is a sinful hate. But we are to hate those that hate God. We are to hate sin, which is an offense against God. And, we're supposed to, and we are to hate them with a, with a pure hatred. And at the same time, we are to love them. And we can do both. You can hate somebody's behavior intensely. You can hate them in, in, a, in, a, in a, let's just say it's a, a beloved family member. So you love them, and yet you hate their behavior, and when they're in that mood, you hate them. So that that hatred towards them is linked with their behavior. But if they are to repent of it, if they are to come to there, what does that mean? Yet you still love them, but your love can become much more abundant towards them because they have dealt with that which is offensive to you. In, in, a, in a way, that is, that is true of what we're reading here. Yes, we are to love our neighbor and we are to love our enemy, but we hate the enemies of God. Not contradictions. We love our enemies, but we hate the enemies of God. I hate them that hate thee. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by thine own counsels. But also this, he is no different from them. And we'll look at this in a, in a second. The only difference is God's work of grace. And so we may understand this also as a sinner who is repentantly come to God and understands more and more something of their own abhorrence and, as it were, agrees that God had every right to condemn them to hell forever. I deserve destruction. I am to fall by my own counsels. I should be cast out in the multitude of my transgressions. I have rebelled against thee. But God... But as for me now, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And so those things that we've seen, they're all, they're all an expression of that inner, inner wickedness. We see in these verses then uh, that the, the great contrast that exists, that in the world of humanity, that they are divided into two. It's God who's made the division. There are two sorts of people. We have the elect and we have the reprobate. They're both predestined by God's eternal decree, one to everlasting life because Christ has taken their condemnation upon himself and those who are predestinated to everlasting death because their, condemn, their condemnation remains upon them. They die in their sins. And yet, by birth and by nature, there is no difference. Exactly the same. 
And the more that we, who are the elect, who have been saved by God's undeserved kindness and the great gift of his own Son and the suffering of God's eternal wrath upon him for our sin, as we, as we are able to understand that more and more, then what then we can live in, in much more, uh, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but we can live in much more joy and thanksgiving to God because there was no difference. There is no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God has kindly made that difference. And we're all, as we read here, uh, by nature, we speak leasing. We are bloody and deceitful men and women. But it's because of God has redeemed his people only by his grace, by that work of salvation, by the work of his Son, that we can have that humble gratitude that we see here as one of the humblest psalms of David, this. Have a humble gratitude for all that the Lord has done. And therefore, have a humble and manifold prayer life to the Lord to cultivate that with him. And so we're going up on a higher note now as we, as we see the psalmist David finishing the psalm on a glorious gospel high note. Continuing on, really, with that, with that idea as we've been considering uh, the but for me I will come into thy house, lead me in thy righteousness, having looked at the reprobate and now considering that the Lord has been pleased to elect me from all eternity. We see in verses 11 and 12 the rejoicing. So the request in prayer, the righteousness of God, the reprobate of which we were of like stuff, but from eternity chosen to something better. And now we have number four and finally the rejoicing that we see in verses 11 and 12. But let, again that but... But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor. Wilt thou compass him as with a shield. So we begin, this, we begin uh, the, the psalm, the prayer, with, with, with that threefold calling upon the Lord. And again, here we have a threefold exhortation that we are to be joyful, uh, rejoice, uh, we're to shout for joy, ever shout for joy, and let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Again, t- three different ways of, of shaking us up out of our, uh, our, our foolish misery. Yes, we are in a state of sin and misery, and yet we are commanded so often in the Bible to rejoice True biblical Christianity is not a is not a is not a faith of the somber. Yeah, there are many things that are very serious, but it is to be a fa- it is to be a faith of the redeemed of God, redeemed of the Lord, bought back, purchased at a, at a wonderful price, the blood of Jesus Christ, and therefore we are to rejoice. We're not to go around with a face that that hangs down. As if, as, if, as if being saved is, uh, is, 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 is not the most wonderful thing on the earth. It is. Not that we have to go around like some of the charismatics with a cheesy grin on your face all the time. And then they have no idea what the true joy of the Lord is because they've never heard the gospel. 
But all those that by God's grace put their trust in him are to rejoice. And if we don't, then we need to consider why is it not that we're not rejoicing. Didn't say always be happy. Didn't say always be, as it were, uh, to use a, a word from my, uh, from my own dialect in Liverpool, always buzzing all the time. That's not necessarily the case. There are many, there are many difficult things in life that would take the smile off our face. Well, then the joy is still in the heart. A deep joy. We've become the righteous children of God, the children of light. Remember what we were, what, what has been mentioned here. With the tongue and the wickedness that's within, and, and yet God has made all the difference. Now we know, as good Presbyterians, we should know that at least of the 109 question and answers, we should know 107, we should know at least the first one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify... I caught you off guard there. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's exactly the same doctrine we have here. Do we not read that? Let them ever shout for joy. There's an eternality of bliss and joy in the Lord. Yes, it may be tempered here because of difficulties, because of circumstances. But there is an eternal joy that will come. Rejoice now in him, let them ever, they will. Maybe not now, maybe you do have difficulties. Maybe you are seriously scarred by life circumstances and other people's sin. But there will be a day when you will ever shout for joy. Because thou defendest them. They've been defended. They've been kept. So do you put your trust in him? And if you do put your trust in him... Meditate thereon, and let the Lord weigh your meditation. Then you are to rejoice and be joyful in Him. And still in those difficult afflictions that are in life, to still find that joy in the dark providences, to find that joy. So when everything else has been stripped away in life and you're down to the bedrock of your faith, it's believing in the promises and the Word of God that I've called upon the name of the Lord and, and I may not understand many things there may be some great difficulties but here's where the, uh, the pedal um, hits the metal as it were and this is what it's all about I may not feel anything at this moment and yet I have joy to know just, just that knowledge that God's word and God's promise is true and has been applied to me and although I may not be feeling at the moment because of sickness because of uh, mental illness because of great grief and yet, there is somewhere deep inside me a spark of joy because of Christ and because he will answer our prayers, because he will hear us. He'll even hear our imprecatory prayers against those that are wicked and he will defend us. And why will he... Why will he um, how does he defend us? I said, why? But how? But it says in verse 12, For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. He has worked faith in us. He has united us to Jesus Christ. He has therefore declared that we're forgiven of our sins. We're declared righteous and we wear the righteousness of Christ. There's no wrath upon us. And so, if we're going to say that the Lord defends us, he defends us from his wrath, as well as defending us from sin and all these other matters and from our earthly enemies. And therefore, on top of that, he will grant us eternal blessings. 
great blessings. With his favor, he will surround and he will shield us forevermore. Now, when we read the word favor, often it is the case that that word favor might be uh, a Hebrew word called chanan, which which is grace. But this is not the word here. It is often the case, but not here. This is a different word, and it, what it means is goodwill and acceptance. It's to, do with, it's to do with relationship. It's to do with affection, this word. So with God's good favor and full acceptance, we are protected. And we're protected from falling away. We will not, we will not lose the faith because he's worked it in us. We're protected from sin. And we are found, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6, and we close with these verses. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor, with that acceptance in Christ, will thou compass him as with a shield. And so we've seen in some ways, although to bring it out whole, uh, wholesale, they would take a lot longer, but I'm trying to keep these evenings short, that uh, we've been taught to pray and to pray humbly, and to pray honestly, and to pray rejoicingly. And how can we do that? Well, in and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And may the Lord bless this to us and help us to apply it in our own lives. Morning, that evening prayer, the exaltation of God, the humbling of ourselves, and the glorying in the righteousness of who he is. And it is with such a God that we need such a saviour to deal with our sin. Uh, Amen. Let's just briefly pray. Lord, we do thank thee for thy word and we pray that thy spirit will apply it to us, will seal it to us, will help us, O God. Lord, we've read so much, having gone through these number of verses. But Lord, help us that we may know something of the grace granted unto David to be such a prayer of prayers to glorify thee. Lord, what what a sanctification would be ours if thou would be pleased to enable us to to actually apply this into our prayer life and to give thee all the glory and the honour at all times, loving thee as our Father and loving thee as our King and as our God. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.